1: excuse me, may I have some more. We are the food cast with an insatiable appetite on this episode. We will feature interviews with uh master chef junior and former chop judge, Aron Sanchez um, as well as his mentor and part two of my interview with uh, Jonathan Waxman and our discussion, Christine's discussion with Daphne Oz who joins uh, Aaron Sanchez on MasterChef Junior this season and also has her new show, her new syndicated daily show called The Good Dish. But first, say hello to my uh, co host, Christine Struble. I'm uh, happy to hear your voice again after maybe too much of a break.
2: It Was it wasn't that long? I, I feel like I always hear your voice inside my head, Brad, but I, it's nice to chat with you again.
1: You know, My daughter works for WWE, which I don't think I've mentioned on the show, but I uh, have mentioned that she uh, edits the show and produces the show for us because she's far more talented.
2: That is very true. She is far more talented than both of us.
1: There you go. So shout out to Madison Kramer for making us sound far better than we actually do. Um, But to the point I was bringing up on uh, WWE, and you you just made me smile, the sports entertainers in her company – um, each have a theme song, some more prominent than the others, and uh, one of their more prominent uh, wrestlers, his theme song starts with the words, "I hear voices in my head."
3: I have voices in my head They count for me They understand they
1: talk to me wow I'm sure we could do two, three, four episodes on those voices in your head. I think we're probably best served to just gingerly tiptoe past.
2: That's fine. You know, at least I referenced something more recent and I didn't say something to the effect of uh, I smell what Brad is cooking. Um, You know, know, it could happen.
1: By our friend, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Let's turn our attention to the interviews we have for this episode, Christine. Um, Each of which we sort of have a recurring theme. Um, And the primary theme that we have, uh, in my mind, is an important one, and that is um, mentoring and mentorship and the importance of um, mentoring and mentorship in the food industry. Our first interview is with Aaron Sanchez, who many people know from his many, many years on Chopped as a judge. Um, He is now featured on MasterChef Junior with Gordon Ramsey and uh, a new host, a new judge this year, Daphne Oz. Um, and before we talk about Daphne, it was fun talking to Aron, not only because doing so was compelled by my conversation with Jonathan Waxman, part one of which we ran on an earlier episode, part two of which you'll hear later in this episode, and Jonathan Waxman and Aron Sanchez had a very special relationship, um, so much, so much so that Aron, at one point early on in their relationship, asked if he could call Jonathan Waxman Dad. and to this day calls him Dad. So mentorship and the role of mentorship, mentoring um, in the kitchen and in general in life and in the industry, is a recurring theme through both of those interviews that you'll hear. And then in your conversation with Daphne Oz, which will also come up, uh, which we'll hear a little later, you talk about mentoring young aspiring chefs and young cooks and, and the people, the kids that uh, she and Aron and Gordon Ramsay work with on uh, MasterChef Junior. So I think it's an important theme. Um, I like that it's a recurring theme through all three interviews on this episode. And I, um, I think people will enjoy hearing professionals who have reached a, a, high level of success, um, embrace the importance of giving back and embrace the role that mentoring plays.
2: I, I think, you know, listening to you talk and, and even with previous conversations that I've had with other celebrity chefs, it's inherent within the hospitality industry that, you know, you listen to Antonio Lafonso, lafaso talk, and she is very clear about the importance of how mentoring impacted her culinary career and why it's so important to her to give back to the others. It's kind of, you know, just like there's hospitality around the table, there's hospitality on that kitchen line in, in that restaurant space, because there's an appreciation that People cannot be successful without the help of others. So this, you know, constant pay it forward it, it, it is always there. And you know, some of the most successful chefs got there on standing on the backs of others, and then they continued that that idea going forward.
1: So, in the case of Aron Sanchez, um, who we will hear now, you can see him on Master Chef Junior. And if you are a fan of Aron's, you can also pick up his book, Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef, and hear more um, in-depth details of his story and his journey, his culinary journey. And yes, we do a a pretty good job talking about a portion of it, but you can only do so much in 25 or 30 minutes. Of a conversation. So I encourage everybody to pick up where I come from, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. And I encourage everybody to watch MasterChef Jr. with Gordon Ramsay, Aron Sanchez, and Daphne Oz. Um, But in the meantime, let's take a listen to my conversation with Aron Sanchez. Relating to Jonathan and your relationship with him, when I talked to him, he mentioned that you asked if you could call him dad and Mm -hmm. said that he was going to be your surrogate dad. And he also told me that it's much more than just a culinary mentorship, which there's a deeper dive to be had there. Can you reflect on your connection to him and how that relationship has evolved beyond just being culinary?
3: Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, I don't care who you are. We all look for mentors and we look for guidance, especially paternal and maternal figures. And I'm no different. Um, I saw a lot of very similarities, uh, from Jonathan, as far as his presence, his, you know, his, um, his, his, his pioneering ways, as far as him chasing his dream and that were very similar to my dad, but I lost my dad when I was 13. So I was always striving for that mentorship. I was striving for that approval and that sort of, you know, uh, that, that, that warmth that, that a dad can give. And when I met Jonathan initially, when we went to take a trip right after 9-11, we all went to Spain and we had this very epic, uh, you know, two week journey there. And, uh, he just kind of cemented himself as somebody that took a vested interest in in my success, my future and, and my happiness. And, uh, I've never, you know stop needing that you know and and you know and people laugh all the time like i'll come to his restaurant barbuda and i'm like hey dad and everyone's like yeah this is my son it's my mexican son and <laughs> you know and everyone's like well you have two sons already and you have a daughter yeah he's like yeah i know i know I no know, but this is my other one and, and i'm not the only one by the way he has joey campanero he has jimmy bradley he has some other chefs that are sort of in that same vein that he has mentored amongst many more.
1: He described you to me as being emotional and very bright, and it being very important to you the connectivity with others in the community. And you sort of reference that through the nine eleven trip. Is there? Can you expand upon that a little bit? That connectivity and uh, not just with Jonathan, but with others.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's. I think it's almost. You know, uh, I'm happy that you asked that question. It's so brilliant because, you know, people don't realize that Chef Waxman's dad was the first really celebrity chef. Uh, his restaurant, Washington Pork. I remember coming in there, um, shit, what was that, 15 years ago? And there he had a photo of himself in a Sassoon jean ad in like 81. <laughs> Ooh la la. And yeah, and him like on this little sort of ladder you know, with the nice jeans on. And I was like this, I was so blown away because it's so relevant to what the celebrity chef uh, craze has happened. He -hmm. was doing that. You know what I mean? Almost close to 40 years ago. And it was amazing. There was a chef being taken out of the context of a kitchen and celebrated. Uh, And, 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 and I just, and I just found that so amazing. And, and, you know, and, and and seeing him and it just, you know, I remember we were there and in Spain and we we're going to go see the, in, in, in La Mancha, to see the famous Don Quixote uh, windmills and where they still grind in wheat. And we we're in this sort of sprinter van and we're supposed to go up to the summit. And then chef says, I'm going to walk. <laughs> and he had a backpack for like 10 days and he looked immaculate every day. And he had like one backpack, typical Californian <laughs> kind of thing, and and he walked all the way from like the bottom of this hill all the way to the windmills, and in his stubborn way, and I just that just cemented my love for him and my admiration, you know, you know. So that, that's perfect. Um, he mm-hmm. also
1: Jonathan also said he used to tease you when mm-hmm. you were still in the shall we say developmental. Stages as a chef, um, about getting your culinary chops together, and Mm -hmm. you you talked a little bit about your travels through Mexico, finding your roots not just culinary but cultural, musical people. Can you talk about Mm -hmm. that specific journey?
3: Yeah, I I think you know, I think what chef, what dad is referencing is sort of like you know, the lack of discipline, um, as you can imagine. And I'm, I'm what you call a very incorrigible man, you know, when I was younger. I always did I fought authority, I fought, you know, uh, you know, all this kind of semblance of order. I just was just like this rock and roll kid that didn't wanna listen to that. Cause my mom was like that. My mom, right. you know, would have these epic staff parties when people came in and she dropped a magic mushroom in their mouth on the way in. <laughs> and I'm a kid, and this is a staff parties, you know what I mean? So so I kind of like grew up in that world. So of course. I was going to be akin to not listening to authority. And then so basically what John thing, I, I I assume is referencing is that idea of being able to go back to Mexico and understanding the importance of my roots and having a culinary voice that is truly your own and making sure that your style is so distinct. And I tell this about Chef Waxman and my dad is that if you give him five ingredients and you give me five ingredients, they're going to taste completely different. The same ones, right? Because he he can make food sing, and he does it in such a sort of uh, gallivanting way, cavalier way, and it just it just magical what he does. But and one would suggest uh, that you're also yeah. that you're
1: being modest, because I'm yeah. sure you can make the same five ingredients sing.
3: Yeah, I can, I can, and and but it's just different, you know. I, I guess, but so his, his way of treating product and uh, understanding, you know, just I, I don't know a deeper meaning and 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 truly making his own. No one can copy Chef Waxman. Nobody. It's I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Like from his gnocchi to his, his the, the kale salad to all of his hits, you know. And it just there's just nothing like that, you know. And, and it's truly inspiring. And food doesn't have to be pretty, right? And that's, for, that, that's for the that's for the interpreter. That's 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 for somebody that sees it. So he, had ta- he has taught me so much valuable lessons. And I and I give him a lot of shit. Like when he doesn't call me, or he's sort of in a mood because he can be very convergenty and sort of stoic in his ways. And I'm like, Dad, I need to hear from you. And we talk a lot about that sometimes. So I need to be better as well. But, you know, so anyway. (laughs) So just
1: having said that, just as we speak here today, when was the last time you talked to him?
3: That's funny. Uh, It's probably been a week, which is not enough for me. Um, You know, you know, know. what what I've he's very much like my mom. Okay. he wants to be kind of doted over, you know, it's (laughs) like, hey. You know, Chef, what do you need? We got you, Chef. And he comes out there and he tells everybody what he wants. And when he gets that, he's in a good mood. Right. But when he doesn't get that, when he can't control it, he gets a little bit like, you know, what what's up? Don't you know what I've done? You know? So he's right. like very much like my mom like that, you know. Which is cool, you know. He's earned it. He's seven years old. He deserves that.
1: The current season of Master Chef Junior is airing now. And you're judging mm-hmm. on that. And you've also done Chop Junior in the past. So I was wondering what you enjoy about working with kids who are passionate about food and are potentially the next generation of great chefs.
3: Well, uh, first of all, um, out of my co-host, well, I mean, on junior, we have, you know, uh, we've, by the way, we, uh, we've invited Daphne Oz, you know, uh, Dr. Oz's daughter, who is just amazing, brilliant and bright and, uh, has this unbelievable chops with food? Let me just tell you how amazing Daphne is. Okay, apart from all of her, all of her upbringing and and, and her education, but she decided to go to culinary school. uh, You know, at whatever age, you mm-hmm. know, as a full an adult and a mom and a and a and a wife, to say I want to have the credibility to be able to speak about food in a way that you know is understood and important. And I just I found that amazing. And so she has joined the mix. And I just this particular season with the kids has been amazing because she's like super mom. Right. She's like going through the whole damn season pregnant. Yep. And we're concerned like there can be one day she's going to say, shit, my water broke. <laughs> it's done. You know what I mean? Like, And so, and, you know, Gordon's a father of five. I'm a father, you know, it's like this crazy thing, and but what gives me a lot of joy is that my kid is Yuma, is my son, yep. is that age of those kids, he's 11 so I kind of like live that life of, of their little world because we have 8 to 13 year olds yep. so i kind of in that world every day where Daphne's kids are younger and then Gordon's kids are grow, uh, are teenagers so I'm like the one that you know, laughably has sort of that that credibility. You know, so I love it. I just I love seeing kids getting away from their iPads and and video games and finding an interest that is something important that will give them that will give them something to build upon. You know, kind of thing.
1: So, speaking of kids, can you tell me about your scholarship fund?
3: Yeah, yeah, so. Very proud of it, um, you know, it's the Aronsanto Scholarship Fund and we've actually partnered uh, this past year with Emeril Lagassi, my dear, dear friend. Emerald and his foundation, we've kind of come together and uh, started to merge our resources and our reach. And um, the idea being is that we take and we identify young uh, Latinos and Latinas from all over the country. And now we've moved into Mexico and other parts to to give them uh the most important sort of element, which is education and a foundation, for them to chase their dreams to be culinary leaders. Cause I found that there was a huge disparity when I started as far as Latinos getting culinary leadership positions. Right. Um, you know, you know, I, I had chefs say ugly stuff to me like, you know, you're a prep guy, a dishwasher, you know. Yeah. And now they all now they all work for my ass. So isn't that funny how, how everything changes? But so the scholarship is really in its genesis with the educational piece and 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 the mentoring part of it as well. So once they go through their 11 month program, we provide all the materials, everything that they need. Then they can we can we can cast a net to all of our wonderful peers and colleagues in the culinary world, so they can go there and work in these different, uh, in these different uh, arenas of food. And, and that's what's very gratifying, you know? Um, and uh, as of right now, we have 12 kids that have graduated. We have four currently in the program. And uh, yeah, we're gonna probably do that, that, another four this year. So yeah, it, it is just beautiful. It's rewarding and you know, this industry has afforded me a beautiful life and I feel like I have to give back.
1: You mentioned Yuma, does he have is he a chip off of the old block? Does he have any culinary talent or
3: interests? I love it that he doesn't. You know, it's funny because I was like, you know, as a father, I was like thinking like shit. You know, I don't want to tell my kid what to do because I don't I didn't respond well to <laughs> to authority, as you can imagine. Yep. You know, there's a great saying in, in Spanish and it's in my book uh, where I come from. Uh, life Lesson from a Latino Chef, uh, which I'm sure everybody will pick up from Abrams uh, after listening to your wonderful show. I, we will, we will uh, promote it, yes. Yes. Um, but there's a saying, there's it's something called amansado, like to to break in a horse, right? So you have this horse that has all this unbelievable talent and ability, but you, it won't let a damn saddle be put on it. Okay. That's me, you know what I mean? You got to tame this beast because it has all this potential and it won't let the damn saddle get on. So that's a metaphor for everything. Right. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine. Right. So, you know, his mom uh, is an artist and plays rock and roll. And so, you know, and I'm a chef, so, you know, he has all this beautiful sort of background of art surrounding him. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm not going to ever tell you what to do, but probably the only two things I'm going to ask you to probably do is not be a chef, one, and go to college. <laughs> those are two things I'm going to ask you to do for, for your old man because I know how many sacrifices and how rough it is to be a chef. Right, It's not easy. It's a very difficult path, and it's not conventional. It's not conducive to a semblance of family and, and order and all that stuff. So I just want it, I want him to sort of find something that he can expand upon his art and all his ability. But um to answer your question, is he a foodie? Absolutely not. He is a stubborn mofo. He loves like the traditional stuff like, you know, the chicken tendrils, the hamburgers, the pizza, <laughs> all the And mind you, he's 11. So my hope is that he's going to start to be more adventurous as he gets older. Good luck with Um, that. Yeah. Good luck with that. I have
1: a a 29 year old that you just described in your 11 year old.
3: (laughs) But you know what? It's all good. I think, you know, the kids have so much information available to them and they make their decisions and I'm not one to tell them, but you know, I, it's on me when he gets a little older, I'm going to take him to Mexico and to South America and other parts of the world where there's no choice. Right. And you're going to eat what you eat. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And yeah. that's the way
1: to, that's the way that you'll lead him to the water and he will have no choice but to drink. I don't know if this next question is going to be controversial. If it is, I apologize. It's not meant to be, but you left chopped, which a lot of people, even to this day, even though you're on Fox and on master chef and you've done so much other stuff, and you've achieved pure celebrity chef status. A lot of people know you from Chopped and for Chopped and you left after eight years. Was that a controversial move? What compelled the decision or was it just an evolution in what you were going to do and what you wanted to do?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, just to, you know, so I'll give you a little bit of background. I was part of the pilot, all right, right of Chopped, okay? so. I remember doing it and I think it was me, Sue Torres and Rocco Despirito, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And we, and we did it somewhere I forgot where in New York. And so I was part of the evolution of the show, right? Um, and, and, you know, you can argue, you know, that like anything else you have to have diversity and you have to, you know, have enough sort of boxes checked I would imagine. Um, so, you know, went through the process and yeah. I'll tell you just something interesting. It's, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to say about versus what I'm doing now versus chopped, but I'm going to say, you know, when you, when you have chopped, it's 22 minutes of tape, right? Right. So you're with, you're with three individuals for a very brief amount of time. So there's really no mentoring going on. It just, you know, your food's not really good or not or whatever, and, which is cool. You know? Cause they're professionals and right. it's, it's shock. Awesome content that people love. And I was very proud of being part of it. And part of my whole trajectory is my, my gratefulness to, of being on job, you know? Um, but the only difference is, and I'm not saying one's different from the other, but on MasterChef, you know, we spent six weeks with them, you know? So whether you're, you know, whether you're, you know, kicked off third, fourth, fifth, six, eight, you still have learned something from us because we spend valuable time with you. You know what I mean? So you're being being mentored and you're taught lessons through that process. And uh, and the awesome part is that, you know, I'm an employee, you know, like Gordon is my boss. I I I was just going to say, Gordon Inc. (laughs) (laughs) And I love being an employee. I think it's such a cool thing. For people that are, um, you know, and, and they have their own businesses, it's good to come back and learn to be an employee. And right. I think I love that process of that. It teaches me so much. So when I go back to my businesses,'m I'm, I'm, I'm better prepared. so yeah, but no, my time with Food Network was invaluable. I'm so grateful for their their belief in me. Um, and by the way, I was there. My first appearance was when they were on 44th Street and 6th Avenue. Oh, long before Chelsea, Market. Absolutely. Late, late 90s. Like, them, they had all of their, uh, all of their studio sets kind of like, you know, put into one room. It was right. was in a high-rise building. It was in Food Today with Dana Hanover and David Rosen Garden. Yep. It was all of these old schools, Like Sarah Daily Show. Sarah yeah, yeah, and all that. So wow. I have that. And we had to bring all of our, our mise en place with us. Oh, like wow. Like, we had to bring it with. So there was no help. So I remember, like, you know, going there, and then they have to bring all of our stuff in these little containers. And, yeah. So I've, I saw food network grow from that, 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 you know. That's great. So I'm I'm internally grateful for the you know for them and all the opportunities they've given me, but you know like anything else, you have to you have to grow and you have to you evolve. Know, evolve. You know, so
1: between your roots with your mom, your Mexican uh, roots, your time with Paul Prudhomme, and obviously your travels, what's your final meal? No, because you've had a well, lot of influences.
3: Yeah, oh my god, if I can have it with anybody, like on that or, table, or, or
1: if you can have anybody, whatever you want on your table before it's it's time to check out what's on that.
3: Yeah. Oh my god, well, well, I would, I mean, I would like to have my grandmother back and share that meal with her. She was such an influential person in my life. She was, you know, and in, 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 at least in Mexican culture, the grandmothers are. I always say this in my demos and stuff. I say, who do you think is the best cook in your house? You know, and I just throw that out there. Yep. And people usually say grandma, yep. right? Like, uh, hands down. And then I, I, I follow that up by saying, uh, if you have your grandmother still here, do me a favor. We got these damn things called cell phones, that videos. Film them uh, cooking yep, and ask them questions. Trust me, you'll be so rewarded with that, right? And I tell everybody that and they're like, wow. And then I say, why is grandma's cooking the best? And they're like, oh, I don't know the experience. I go, no, because grandmothers are never in a rush. You ever see your grandmother move fast? Hell no. Nope. So that, that stew in that pot has all day to work and develop flavor and layers and layers and layers. And that right there is what makes it so special. So, um, yeah, so grandma would definitely be there. You know, at the end of the day, uh, I like cooking things that are not Mexican. So I love a whole roasted chicken, preserved lemons, garlic, uh, half uh, half a head of garlic cloves, tons of thyme and aromatic herbs a beautiful sort of seasoning on the outside of the bird, maybe a little bit of sumac and something fun like that. And then something very simple, like, uh, and, and honor that, you know.
1: So you didn't, you didn't mention, uh, Jonathan Salsa Verde with that bird.
3: Well, yeah, with the Salsa Verde, of course, you know, but he, <laughs> he, he gets a, he gets a damn enough, uh, enough club with that damn Salsa Verde. Oops, and sorry. I, 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 if you knew how easy that, well, it's not easy, but, it, you know, how did he do it? Well, he seasons a damn bird overnight, you know, with salt. You know what I mean? Like pepper, salt and pepper. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? So, yes. so if, you, if, you're, if you're ever concerned with some kind of magic or Houdini shit that he's doing, it's not that case. you know. It's like
1: <laughs> There's no magic wand in the Barburo kitchen?
3: <laughs> no. Yes, there is. It's him. He That's is. Him. The he yeah. is. I mean, Yeah. It's just like that seasoning, that seasoning, and understanding. And here's the other part that I want all of your listeners to understand: is farm to table is not a novelty, knuckleheads. It's a responsibility. It's been kind of happening from the date, from the beginning of time, right? So when people say I have a farm to table restaurant, I almost want to laugh. And the other one that makes me laugh is a, a chef-driven restaurant, as opposed to a dishwasher-driven restaurant, like. What right. the hell does that mean? It's like, no, you have a responsibility. Get the best ingredients closest to you and manipulate the least, East right. and make them sing. That's all you need to do. You know, and Jonathan, you know, my mentor, one of my mentors is really do a good job of doing that. And I think you asking me this question says a lot, you know, and I thank you for that. And I thank you for understanding who I am as a cook and as a person, because you're not, you know, you know what I'm about, you know, Absolutely. and who's around me, you know, so I appreciate oh, sure. that. Thank you
1: so much. And thank you so much for taking the time today, Arona. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, how much fun this has been for me.
3: Oh, Brad, stop it, man. And here's the deal. You can have me anytime you want, and I'll come back and do it. And it's finally a cool topic to talk about. Like, I think we'll be neat is to talk about uh, the regional Mexican uh, influences all over the country. Like Chicago, for instance, being uh, the distributing point where all Mexican ingredients go around in the North and then Houston being the one in the South. Like we can talk about how ingredients move around. You know what I mean? That would be a fascinating
1: conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: for sure. Because I'm here... Oh, to say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go
1: into it now. I would save that for the next conversation. But when I see somebody that's attached to almost legendary status, you mentioned Chicago, a oh, Rick Bayless doing Mexican oh,
3: food. Oh, oh, I love, I bow my head to Chef Rick. I bow my head to him.
0: And then and I don't oh.
3: I'm sorry, Brad. He, just, he is so special because when a gringo does Mexican food, he approaches it from a purist standpoint. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, as a Mexican, I don't go out and eat Mexican food unless my family cooks it. See what I'm saying? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't trust people's with other Mexican food unless my family's making it. And but like he has done something so special. So special. He is a purist. He attacks the food from a way of just understanding and tradition and it just I mean just amazing and I applaud Rick Bayless and Diana Kennedy and all of these chefs that are, are from not Mexican uh, backgrounds that celebrate our food so I we you know I'm eternally grateful you know to promote our shit. you know <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to do a deeper dive on that next time we talk yeah 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 absolutely Brad That'd well you know what you're you're a scholar and a gentleman and I appreciate you and thank you for having me and we're back.
1: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Aron Sanchez. Um, I didn't mention it before we ran the interview, but I really enjoyed being able to ask a question I've always wanted to ask. And oftentimes we don't get answers when we ask questions like this, but um, Aron Sanchez was on Chopped for many, many years. And most of the judges on that show, whether it's the Scott Conans or the, um, Mark Murphy's or the Alex Gornichelli's or the Amanda Freitags are still there. And yes, they all do other projects and have, many of them have restaurants too, but own moved on. And so when I asked him about leaving Food Network and leaving Chopped after so many years, um, like it, I really appreciated the, appreciated the fact that, uh, he was willing to share his thoughts on transitioning away from the network and away from the show and, and moving forward and working with Gordon Ramsey. So um, hope you enjoyed that as well. I should also mention, I did uh, tell you the name of Aron's book leading into the interview. I should also add, if your travels take you to new Orleans anywhere in the near any, any time in the near future, you can also visit Aron Sanchez's restaurant, which is called, Johnny Sanchez in the I think it's in the warehouse district in New Orleans. So um, hope you enjoyed that uh, comprehensive conversation with Aron Sanchez.
2: Hold on, Brad. I have a question for you. Okay. so I would probably be up for going to Johnny Sanchez, Johnny Sanchez in New Orleans. Um, I I was just curious, did Aron offer to, you know, create a tattoo for you at his tattoo shop?
1: No, I didn't go down the ink road. Being that I am uh, devoid of any on my body, and have no plans for that to change, so working out of order. Our next conversation or our next interview was uh, is part two of my chat with Jonathan Waxman, and I was going to piggyback right into it, even though I'm sort of doing it in reverse, because Jonathan in this part of the interview talks about that relationship with Aron Sanchez and its origins and the importance of it. And, and some of the guidance that he gave Aron and his feelings on mentorship. And yes, we discuss um, other stuff as well in our, in this brief segment part two um, the other thing that we do discuss, which, which is always interesting for you and I, Christine, when we, when we do these episodes and do the interviews We feature chefs and we talk to chefs, and many are known for a specific restaurant. Um, In the case of Jonathan Waxman, it's Barbudo in New York. Or when you talk to Wolfgang Puck, it's Spago in California, in LA. Um, These chefs have a landmark restaurant that they're known for. So I did take a moment to ask Jonathan to talk a little bit about restaurants that he has in. Nashville, Tennessee, which is called the Dells and here in Atlanta, which is called Buffy Um, because people who are foodies and who do listen, who do listen to shows like this or, or read the kind of content that we create on foodsided.com or that you create on foodsided.com. And I do once uh, every blue moon, um, it's nice in, in their travels to say, Hey, you know what? We're going to Nashville and, uh, okay, I had the hot Nashville chicken 15 times already. Where's something else I can go? Oh, I love Jonathan Waxman. Or true story, I was out looking at homes with my son a couple weeks ago. And one of the places we looked at was across the street from Boffy, Jonathan Waxman's restaurant here in Atlanta. And the realtor was unaware of it. And I mentioned it to her and then it's Jonathan. Oh, I love Jonathan Waxman. I'm gonna have to go there. I'm gonna have to make a reservation during the week. So having these regional locations by these well-known chefs, Scott Conan has a new restaurant, a new Italian restaurant opening up uh, here in Atlanta any day now. Um, it's fun to talk to the chef about those um, outposts for, of their empires and, and their operations and hear them talk a little bit about the city and the roots and their thoughts on that. And so that was a fun part of the conversation with Jonathan.
2: Well, those type of things are really important. I mean, having it now what when you see so many chefs that have become more of a personality. They're no longer that person hidden back in the kitchen on the line. You want to have that connection, which is why, you know, it's not just a restaurant in New York City or LA or even Las Vegas anymore. It's across the country. And and Jonathan Waxman is a great example of not only just having the restaurants but also having other events that kind of pull people together you know he did a food and music festival because he's very much into music and music kind of inspires him in the kitchen so that kind of connection is something that's showing more of that crossover between food and culture even if you look at um you know, recently from Top Chef Kwame, he is doing you know a family-inspired food festival, bringing together people and culture. And even in the most recent announcement that Carla Hall uh, did her partnership with Pepsi, where they Pepsi created an app just for people, kind of like what you explained where, hey, I'm going to another city and maybe it's Dallas, maybe it's Houston, maybe it's Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I can go to this app and pull up some chefs, some restaurants that could use some support, whether it's a women-owned business or a Black-owned business. But people are becoming more thoughtful that when they choose to go out and have dinner, it's at an establishment That has some type of personal connection to who they are,
1: and I think that's what has made being a foodie or a fan of food so accessible now for so many people.
2: Most definitely, I mean it. It's you know it's it's a
1: people those those chefs and and that you like you just mentioned with the Carla halls and the Kwame and so everything is now within arm's reach of many. I won't say most because there's still some uh, areas of the country that are not as accessible to cities and locations where they can get to stuff. But that's exactly the point that these people and their food and their businesses are now sort of like tentacles reaching out all over the country. and, And it just makes it so much more accessible and makes it so much more engaging to be a foodie.
2: Absolutely. And and it's, you know, fostering a conversation and a connection between people and and groups so that maybe, hey, you know what, just because we may not have grown up the same way or have necessarily the same beliefs, we can find some commonality around there. And oftentimes it can be around a table.
1: Yeah, because you don't want to eat on the floor.
2: You know, I, I, I've i never was really into that. The, the, I don't like the picnic thing. Sorry, National Picnic Month. Um, I want a table and some utensils. N- n- put away the blanket and the basket. It's not my vibe.
1: So let's take a listen to part two of my interview with Jonathan Waxman, which uh, again discusses the origins of uh, his close relationship and special relationship with Ron Sanchez. And if you are in New York, or Atlanta, or in Nashville, Tennessee, at some point in the near future. It's, you know, summer is upon us, and people are getting out and about again. Um, In New York City, you can go to Jonathan's flagship, which is Barbudo. And he also has a restaurant in New York called Jams. And then if you're here in Atlanta, you can go to Boffy. Or if you're in Nashville, you can go to Adele's. Um, Let's take a listen. Part two of my conversation with Jonathan Waxman. You're revered by a who's who of other chefs who have achieved celebrity chef status of their own, many of whom talk about the role you played in their culinary lives. One of those chefs that everybody knows is Aaron Sanchez, who you have a very close relationship with. Can you talk a little bit about him as a chef and specifically your role in mentoring him and building that relationship?
0: Well, you know, it's it's funny. I first met uh, Aaron when uh, he moved to New York with his mom and his twin brother, Uh, In the uh, mid-early 80s, uh, Zarela Martinez wanted to, she had a catering business and um, a whole sort of culinary, you know, uh, grouping in El Paso, Texas, and she got lured to New York uh, to open up uh, a restaurant um, and called Cafe Marimba. And I remember going to her house in, in the Upper West Side. And meeting these two young kids. One of them was Aaron and his brother Rodrigo. And uh then later on I would see them. I mean, Aaron was actually working in Marimba as a young kid. Could you imagine that? Um his mom was having him work in the pantry. And over the years, you know, we see each other at different, you know, events and stuff. And at one point I don't actually really remember. I'm I'm sorry. It, my my memory is foggy in this. He, um, he lost his dad uh, a number of years before. And uh, Zarela was kind of a single mom that was really do, having to run a restaurant, take care of her kids. It was, you know, I, I really admire Zarela for doing this, but Aaron sort of said, you know, you know, do you mind if I can call you dad? Uh, And uh, I said, "Okay." (laughs) Uh, this is before actually I had children of my own. And um, I was a little embarrassed by the whole thing. But I think what he was trying to do for our relationship was he was trying to cement something that he felt very passionate about. And Aaron is an incredibly um, uh, emotional and bright human being. He loves the connectivity between between all of us. Um, and he kind of said that, you know, I was going to be a surrogate dad. And so it's it's more than culinary <laughs> uh, as as a mentorship. And along the way, he had this, this restaurant in, in the Lower East Side that I used to go to all the time. He used to operate with his sister. And it was it just uh, the most hysterical thing. Um, but I would go there and I would talk to him about, you know, this, maybe you could do this a little bit better. And I was really not very um, specific on what he should do, but I always would, would tease him about, you know, getting his culinary chops together. And then uh, as his career developed and he started going on, you know, TV a little bit and then a little bit more and then a lot more and then now he's, um, you know, on national TV every other week. Yeah. Um Aaron developed a, a a palette and a repertory that took a long time to do. Um if I could be part of that process I'm happy to be part of that process but he really did it himself. Um but I think you know you remember his mom was a great cook. He came from a great culinary background. So he had the He had the base. He had the foundation. What he needed to do was find, get in touch with himself and find out who he was. And I think that's the hardest thing as a cook to understand, Uh, be comfortable with your own, um, your own uh, desires and, and aspirations, because we all want to be different. We all want to do things, whether it's really different or slightly different, or we just, but we don't want to be part of the part of the the masses we wanted to distinguish ourselves in some specific way and you know to me the ultimate especially when i was when i was a musician was improvisation and all these young turks would say i can improvise and and get up play the worst solos on the planet and the teacher would just kind of grimace and go okay you know good try (laughs) you know you know back to the pack cooking is the same thing in order to develop your own Um, recipes and your own style takes a really long time. Some people are are more precocious than others. I will grant you that there are people that I've met that have developed it very early on in life. Right. Um, And that's fantastic. But I think for the most part, most people take a a long time and I watch Aaron and I, I think I my my main role as his dad (laughs) It was to kind of encourage him and don't, he would, you know, he would get worried that he wasn't following the right path. Right. And then all of a sudden I realized what he was doing was he was going around Mexico to different regions and discovering his roots and not just his roots, but uh, the roots of Mexico and how, how important the culture of Mexico is, not just the food, but music, um, you know, art, um, but the people themselves were his influence. That he fell in love with his uh, heritage, and that really was his. That that really defined him as a cook and as a chef and as as a person. And now he's um, a little bit larger than life, you know. He's and I love that. I think that he's able to be uh, a personality on TV. But he taps into that um, foundation that his mother provided, his culture provided, um, and then his friends like me helped him, um, nudged him along. But he he blossomed, and that to me is the ultimate expression of a chef. That has to be extraordinarily gratifying for you. Well, it's you know every time I see him, it's it's uh, he was in town last week and he mentors he mentors kids now from um, high school and college to go into the culinary arts. And he started a foundation, which I applaud him for doing so. Um, And he's very proud of that because he knows how hard it was for him. He went to Johnson and Wales, you know, how he had to, he worked for, he worked at Paul Prudhomme. He had worked at other restaurants. Uh, He knows how hard that process is. If you can give people that um, show talent and show desire and show uh, a little bit of Fortitude and give them some money to afford to go to school. Isn't that a great thing? And that's what he's trying to do.
1: Thanks again to food television and your household name status and the huge number of people that call themselves foodies from around the country. People will now plan a trip to a city to dine at a chef's restaurant or multiple chef's restaurants, obviously, um, Barbudo in New York City included. But for people who are un, less familiar with Adele's in Nashville and Buffy here in Atlanta, where I am. Can you cast a wider net and talk about those restaurants and and why they should visit Nashville and and visit Adele's and come to Atlanta and visit Buffy, among other restaurants?
0: Well, and that's the thing that's so nice is that um, you know New York is not the center of the world. <laughs> you know, um, don't tell that to any New Yorkers. No, no, they all know that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think you think about Nashville, um, you know, it's really become almost the music center of the world and, uh, you know, what better place to have a restaurant, you know, cause food and music to me are obviously synonymous. And I think, um, I'm very lucky that we have a great location in Nashville. Um, <clears throat> I think that there's an incredible, um, enthusiastic, you know, local crowd. And now Nashville over the last 10 years has become one of the greatest tourist attractions in America because of music, now food. But also it just, it's a fun place to be, you know, the honky tonks on Broadway, uh, you know, the, the beautiful countryside, it's it's just an amazing place to be. Uh, And the weather is great. Um, There's just nothing wrong with Nashville. Uh, Atlanta, which is an older city, which has more, cultural basis than a lot of places in the world um equally has a lot of um important things that that people gravitate towards um and you know it's funny when i was touring emory college and my son he didn't actually end up at emory um but i was very thrilled with emory i thought it was like terrific i would be happy to gone to emory um and we and you drive around um you know I had known in the years before Buckhead and other parts of little different parts of Atlanta but owning um Buffy allowed me to sort of see Atlanta as a very diverse place that um, there was different neighborhoods there was different um, cultural centers um there's great museums obviously there's great music there's great sports um and People just love food in Atlanta. I, I always knew this. I always felt that there was a big food culture, and I had been going down since the early '80s. Um, and you know what's happened is that the whole southern, um, you know, food scene, you know, really burgeoned in in Atlanta. Right. Um, you know, I mean, Steven Satterfield to me is 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 a national gem. Um, I I think that um, and there's other chefs that I can mention that are equally as you know, exciting and wonderful, and they've created a new uh, landscape in Atlanta that um, I think really has elevated everything in Atlanta and and you know I, I have to tell you I get better fish in Atlanta than I get almost any place in America. Yeah, I get, that's- um, great great produce um, the it's because it's a mild um, uh, temperature wise, you get a long, much longer growing season in New York. It's a hundred days, right? You know, in Georgia, you have the benefit all of of the coast of all the different, you know, counties all producing different things. And I have to tell you, there's nothing better than a, um, a peach from Georgia. So, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's, it, it's a great place to have a restaurant. Um, and, I'm I'm very lucky to have restaurants in Nashville, in uh, in Atlanta, and I have two in New York. I have jams in, in one hotel and right. uh, Barbuda.
1: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed uh, part two of my conversation with Jonathan Waxman and hearing him reflect on his relationship with Aron Sanchez and uh, talking a little bit about uh, the regional attraction of opening restaurants in Nashville and Atlanta. Um, Christine, before we get to your conversation with Daphne Oz, um, having nothing to do with anything, sort of like the, the hot dog theme, the hot dog conversation earlier in the episode, I became aware of something today also tied to a sporting event, a summer sport um, that I just had to get your thoughts on because you do a lot of um, alcohol related interviews and product releases and articles and stuff. And it's definitely not my terrain, as we all know. Um, as we record this, we are a couple of days away from the first round of the PGA championship in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, at Southern Hills Country Club. And what has caught my interest other than the golf, which I love, the players themselves, these you know millionaires and billionaires in some cases. Um, Well, that would be Tiger Woods. Um, These multimillionaire successful players have all caught wind of something and have noticed something in their travels around the venue this week. And when I heard it, I sort of stopped in my tracks. I'm like, okay, this is something I have to ask Christine about and get her thoughts. If you are at Southern Hills Country Club this week, uh, whether for practice rounds or the tournament itself, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, and you want a Michelob... Is it ultra? Is that a?
2: Michelob Ultra. Okay. okay. A
1: Michelob Ultra at Southern Hills Country Club this weekend. It is going to cost you
2: $18. Discuss. $18? $18. Does it have a, a Capeca on it too? Because he's sponsored by Michelob Ultra. Maybe that's like a whole thing.
1: I'm thinking a guy in a tuxedo and white gloves should show okay. up and, and do the pour for you. And then uh, <laughs> towel you down afterwards and, and lay you down for $18 so, for a Michelob Ultra at the PGA Championship in Southern Hills this week and I don't drink. So okay, I don't the, I don't know, but I know when I hear an eighteen dollar beer that something is wrong here.
2: Well, I, I have many a question because you know at sporting events or concerts, what have you, generally I pay for a beer with fees, etc. would probably be twelve to maybe 14 you go to a theme park it's normally right around 10 to 12 for a beer so 18 is a little high i'm assuming it's a little high well so if you saw this week um there was a whole controversy uh that has been well publicized a year ago at uh port authority airports in the tri-state area LaGuardia, jfk etc there was one um there were people that were showing that they were charged $28 for a Sam Adams summer, one draft beer. Uh, and the, you know, because there were service fees and a COVID recovery fee. And then it came out that someone mistyped somehow. Uh-huh. Uh, with, so, but you know, now there's a new rule in place where you can't be overcharged for a beer. So, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised that they're getting away with 18 bucks a beer. I maybe it comes in a special glass, kind of like the two grand or however many thousands of dollars mint julep that was served at, you know, Churchill downs. I would of- be
1: inclined to say it's more just like a tall boy standard old. vest. If,
2: if it's an aluminum can, Regular one that you could buy, what, a 12-pack a at your local grocery store. Someone's probably going to have a flask in their back pocket because or be running back to the Masters where they can get their pimento sandwich for a couple bucks.
1: I thought it was crazy. And actually, at the Masters, I should add, um, you could get an imported beer or a domestic beer for five bucks and a yeah. cup of coffee for a buck fifty.
2: Well, it's got to be something to th- something strange there if they're actually charging eighteen dollars. There's something off. And, and truthfully, by the time they tee off on Thursday, I'm betting money that the price is going to come down because th- that that's not that can't happen. Right, I'm
1: be- going to have to do a deeper dive, and, and we're going to have to remember to revisit this next time we uh, convene to record our next episode. Because I just I was appalled by that, and I don't even drink.
2: Well, you know what? I'll even add, I'll reach out to the Nick Gulture team and see if I can find something out for you if that really, truly is the case. Sounds good. But not even be in charge of it. It's probably a venue thing. It's like anything that you go to a sporting event. It has to do with whoever's in charge of the venue and what they price. Them.
1: The nice thing is, Christine, that your conversation with Daphne Oz and this entire episode doesn't cost our listeners a penny. So they can pull up the beverage of their choice and hopefully they have one handy. They can sit back and courtesy of us, totally gratis. They can now listen to you discuss MasterChef Junior and her new show, The Good Dish, uh, with Daphne Oz.
2: And if you're looking for a cocktail, she has a great one. That's a skinny margarita that she did last uh, summer. So go look for that one. it'll go perfectly with this conversation.
1: Here we go. Here's your conversation with uh, Daphne.
2: I was curious. What drew drew you to join um, Gordon Ramsay and Adarone Sanchez uh, as as one of the judges for the new season?
4: Oh, I mean, what drew? I mean, I I am by nature right, a very Uh, a lover of competitions i think they're really fun and 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 incredible to see people like thrive in those intense environments and this just looked like the most fun um you know incredible kids incredible chefs you know young competitors and contestants and i and um and to do it in a way that uh, that really fostered that passion that they came to the show with, fostered that joy and that willingness to try new things that they came with, but helping them get so much better over the arc of this season um, was always really, really just exciting to me to get to be a part of.
2: Well, what, you know, looking at these kids that we've seen over the the various seasons, they have a tremendous culinary talent at a very young age. Was there anything that really surprised you? Because, I mean, you've been around the culinary world for a while. I'm, I mean, I remember you on the Chew. So, um, th- we don't, I, I mean, I look at my kids and I don't think they can cook, but <laughs> they can't cook like that.
4: <laughs> no, 100%. I mean, but that like as a, a mom of four, at that time, I, I was actually very pregnant with my fourth, who's now uh, two and a half. But Um, At the time, my oldest was five. And I remember always looking at these kids being like, wow, like this could be her in three years, you know, uh, making homemade pasta and and uh, and, you know, perfectly sauteing a filet like this is really it actually was very eye opening to how much we underestimate what kids are capable of and how much we can entrust them with and what they can do given an opportunity to to try something new. Now, obviously, these kids have been has been lots of time honing their skills and and um and leveling up their playing but i think it was very eye-opening and and gave me a lot of um confidence to to get my kids in the kitchen and they honestly they do their own little mastership cooking competitions which is hilarious and so cute but uh but to get them to feel from an early age that confidence and that joy around cooking and that um, self-sufficiency of being able to make something with their hands, which we know kids love to do.
2: Well, and that's a really good point. You know, that that idea of self-sufficient, making something with their hands. Do you think that that this kind of um, program opens the door for parents and kids to have a conversation about food in general and maybe, you know, push away some of those comments that we get from you know, little kids sometimes, oh, food's icky. I don't want to try that. And maybe get them interested in eating something a little more adventurous.
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I, I never heard from more friends uh, with kids that were like, I, when is the show coming out? I can't wait to watch it. My kids are so excited that we, we watch the show religiously. And I think it is because First of all, it's just great to watch with with the family because there's something for everyone. Everyone can learn alongside these kids. The energy is always so high and fun and, and just like, you know, nail biting but also incredible. And um and I think it does like kids, all you really want when you're addressing picky eaters or, or trying to work something novel into your kids' diet is like is, is for them to not be afraid of food. And I think them being able to see other kids. Thriving in this world, being so experimental, being so engaged, being so capable in food um, is very, you know, it's it breaks down a lot of the barriers they might have created in their minds about why they couldn't possibly eat salmon or, you know, don't, don't like any green vegetables. It suddenly makes it seem very approachable that you have kids just like you, you know, being being little rock stars in the kitchen.
2: Well, and you brought up a really good point that at the heart, while we know it's a competition and it showcases food in a in a fabulous way, but at the heart of it, there's some fun and, and just kind of, you know, like letting your guard down a little bit. So looking at the breadth of the season without giving away any spoilers, of course, um, you know, which were some of the challenges that kind of hit home for you?
4: Oh, well, I don't know if it hit home for me, save for the fact that like, as a family, we always go to the Renaissance Fair. Uh, and and when, so when I found out we were gonna be shooting at a Renaissance Fair for one of our early challenges, I quite literally squealed with excitement. I'm so, <laughs> so pumped to get to do this. Um, but I think it's, I, you know, I think that we, we really, the whole arc of the show is is putting the kids in imperfect environments. Or with or with, you know, imperfect preparation of like surprise ingredients, uh, you know, novel techniques of cooking and then be expanding their skill sets along the way to help them thrive in those environments. And I think that um, is very honestly like applicable to the to the home cook. You know, sometimes you're working with ingredients you don't always use or you're trying to make the best of what you have or you're repurposing leftovers or you're trying to cook in one skillet or you're you know you're doing a million different things and i think i think that the confidence in the kitchen comes from having experience in a wide range of uh of uh scenarios and i think um you know, obviously, none of us are not not I should say none, not many of us are being put in a position to have to cook at a monster truck rally or, you know, <laughs> or or take over a restaurant kitchen. But there's things we can each learn from watching the kids experience those high pressure environments. And I think um and that, that is that was really profound to me to see the all the learning that is constantly happening amidst the fun um, and to and to really like model my, you know, my contributions off of how Gordon and Arone, Uh, Just watching them share with these kids, you know, be able to provide really important and constructive feedback, um, you know, really amping up their skill level, you know, taking them under their wing in a way that like what a what a what a uh, privilege to be able to learn from these greats, but also to always do, you know, to give that constructive feedback and criticism in a way that encourages continued exploration continued passion continued joy something that i think sets kids apart from adults in these kind of cooking competitions is they're not married to any particular cuisine they're not professionally trained they don't feel held up by their you know accolades they're really there just because they love food and uh and you get quite a creative experience as a result
2: well it's interesting that you said you know that that constructive feedback is given, which um, sometimes can be difficult, especially when dealing with kids. But I've heard many chefs say one of the best ways to learn um, to be a better cook is to have the mistake and then recover from it. So... Do you think that there is some benefit from not only participating in this competition for the, the few who get the opportunity, but for the families um, or anyone watching at home, seeing how they a mistake is not the end of the world, it's how you recover and, and move on? Well, I
4: think that's a lesson we're all constantly being reminded of because life is a series of, of missteps and failures along the way that ultimately, if you let them lead you towards much bigger successes. And I think you, you won't, you know, you, you you won't know how to handle the bigger problems if you don't aren't initially confronted with the smaller problems. (laughs) And I think that's, um, That is really an incredible, you know, and and very like affirming and rewarding feature of the show that I hadn't thought about. But but yeah, that we're all we can all learn alongside. We can all see that. And there are there are those moments of redemption where a, a contestant who really was struggling in the beginning has this huge just step up uh, in their in their skill sets in their in their ability to work through an issue in their uh, you know ability to to uh, absorb new information and apply it in the next round of competition. Where you do you see that if they hadn't had that failure moment, they could never have gotten they would never have had the skill sets to succeed the way they did today. And I think that's um, very very empowering.
2: Well, and, you know, in addition to Master um, Chef and Master Chef Junior, excuse me. Um, I know that you are coming out with um, a new daytime TV show, which brings you back after missing you on The Chew. That used to be my lunchtime break with my kids, watching oh. you on The Chew, <laughs> and they loved it. Um, so I was curious, how is it going back and being on The Good Dish and and having, you know, a panel of women uh, at the table?
4: It's it's truly been amazing and I, I love hearing that that you tune into the chew regularly because and I hear that from so many people the show was amazing and it was such a bright spot for people and and um, and it was just such like a fun place to come and tune into the, what felt like a family dinner table conversation <laughs> with you know a bunch of bunch of wackos <laughs> but it was <laughs> but it was you know that, that that was so much the feeling of that that same joy that same uh, bright spot on TV everything delicious in daytime. Uh, no stress, genuine connection is what The Good Dish is all about. And I think, um, you know, it's hosted by myself, Gail Simmons and Jamaica Pessoa. So as you mentioned, it's an all female cast, which is, and honestly, like a lot of our hires up in production are women as well. So there's really a a deep desire to have this be a place where you come to the, you come, you hang out at our table and hang out in the kitchen with us. And it's, it's, it's meant to make you feel good. It's meant to make you feel confident in the kitchen. It's meant to make you look good when you get in there and make something for your family. Um, and we are covering food as, as sort of the, the main... Filter and the main lens that we're looking at the world through, and always answering the question, "What's for dinner?" which we know is a constant stress in people's lives they're just like, "What am I doing tonight after a long day to get dinner on the table?" But as three busy moms and working women, we're also covering fashion and beauty and life advice and cha- motherhood, and um, and I think that's really uh just a, a really rewarding conversation to be a part of. And I love, you know, we we obviously do a lot to get the show made it takes a lot from us it, it um it is a it is a a, a wonderful but a, intense experience and the most rewarding incredible thing we hear every day are from viewers who are just like i I, feel, I felt like I could try something because I watched you guys make it and I made this nail. My family loved it. Like it made me feel so good. Uh, you know, I, I love tuning in because I always know I'm going to smile, like laugh about something with you guys or, or chiming in on a conversation we're having. That ability to connect I think is fundamentally still something that sets TV apart in such an important way from all the other great ways we have to consume food content. It's the only place where you have that ability to stay that consistent with people to be a part of their lives in such a comfortable, easy way to, um, to have the bandwidth. Like, you know, you know, you know, when you have those friendships that are made because you actually have time to invest in those friendships, (laughs) you're you're, you're not investing in us in like, seven second clips like we have an hour together to really breathe life into this relationship and i think that's so powerful in a time when i think we're all in that connection again so a huge privilege and opportunity to get to be a part of the good dish and we're having so much fun
2: well thank you very much for your time today i do appreciate it my pleasure thanks christine have a great day
1: and we are back hope you enjoyed christine's conversation with daphne Oz. she was very engaging, very bubbly and enthusiastic, which was fun to hear. And she fit our recurring theme, um, recurring themes on the show, the Master Chef Junior theme, the mentoring, getting in the kitchen and helping little ones. So um, put a nice little bow on the three interviews for this episode. Um, before we wrap up, Christine, this will be the last episode to drop before Memorial Day. And that uh, leaves me inclined to ask you whether you have an annual Memorial Day menu tradition that you follow year after year, or just, hey, this year I've been thinking I'm going to do this.
2: Well, for the past couple of years, shockingly, we've had a swim meet. But this year we're choosing a different route because, well, the kids are getting older and I have decided that we don't need to spend twenty four seven at a pool. So, uh, one part of our Memorial Day weekend is going to be spent seeing Paul McCartney because you know my kids should see a rock and roll legend before he can't perform anymore. And then we are actually hosting a Memorial Day party for uh, everyone. Uh, while the menu is not quite set yet, I my guess is in addition to like brats and some hot dogs, uh, because there are children out there who aren't like mine and don't aren't adventurous eaters. Um, I think we are either going to do uh, a smoked brisket on, um, like a Texas style brisket on the big green egg. Uh, then we'll probably do like a pork loin too. And maybe, um, some smoked chicken breasts or uh even a turkey breast you know because if you're loading up the smoker you and you're going to be cooking all day long because it takes what 12 hours to do a brisket Mm -hmm. you load it up with some food basically our our holiday celebrations are meat meat and more meat Uh, you want a vegetable bring your own uh, that's kind of how it works in our uh, on our holidays.
1: Is this a Struble family memorial day or is it the Flintstone family memorial day?
2: <laughs> well, it, it it's the uh, I don't have the gigantic bone, and it's not going to so make the. Carb. You're not gonna
1: make brontosaurus burgers.
2: No, not not exactly. But we. Um,
1: it's a have lean it. beef. A lean meat.
2: That that is true. as opposed to the amount of bacon uh that we put on the brisket to, in order to keep it uh well seasoned and uh flavorful
1: no no no, to, no 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 you you what, do that you wrap it in brisket
2: we do we we layer one i mean side you wrap the, it in bacon yeah with the top the what when we normally do our brisket we will trim the fat off of one side of it then layer that side with bacon so that the renderings go in and keep it um tender because i'm avoiding a particular word with that starts with m um that i hate and
1: Moist.
2: <laughs> thank you brad uh, so you, you kind of do that and that that helps so that you don't have all those extra fat packet pockets when you slice into it and that's just something we found with the big green egg that works well um but we're we're looking at having you know neighbors and friends over so it'll be a smorgasbord of meat okay so
1: so when we we, when we get together again on a next episode, hopefully the next episode if we remember and i will try to remember we need to discuss this whole wrapping good meat in bacon because i have definite Mm -hmm. thoughts on that that we won't get into now and i also am very curious and i think it could be a fun conversation when you invite people over whether it's a meal inside or a cookout or something like that for a holiday like this. Um, I think it can be very amusing and it is often very amusing to hear and discuss and make fun of. And if none of your friends listen to this food cast uh, poke fun at um, what kind of food people bring when they come to your house. So those are two topics we're going to have to explore. We don't have time to do that today on this episode, but we will get back to it because I find both of them very entertaining and I have a strong opinion on the bacon and I have a strong curiosity on what your uh, guests are going to bring for Memorial Day. So make a mental note, Christine, we've got to talk about both next time.
2: I I will. So now I'm adding bacon to my list of things that I need to send Brad.
1: No, I love bacon. I could eat bacon (laughs) three times a day. Bacon, when you you go to a steakhouse, okay. see, you you lured me in. You go to a steakhouse and you make a filet and there's a beautiful filet and it's wrapped in bacon. No, not necessary. Uh, Totally. uh, And a beautiful brisket steamed, I mean, uh, smoked and done perfectly. And you've invested 12 hours and you have that smoke ring and you have that crust and that char and and to wrap it in bacon. No. And we're going to have to discuss this.
2: Hey, we, we have, I, I think once I'll get, I'll bring, unfortunately we talk a lot, so there's not good visuals, but I will do my best to describe what happens so that you have a better grasp of uh, why this, why this actually works. Okay.
1: We're going to go there and until next time though. Thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interviews. Join us next time on this wonderful show. Christine, it's been fun as usual.
2: Always a pleasure, Brad. And I'm popping open my 25 ounce, uh, bottle of Ultra, right as
1: we speak and i'm having my free water have a good day take care bye bye
3: thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube